0: Hello world, this is episode 102 of the Stream of Random, 100 days, and we have been recording non-stop every day for the last 50 so episodes, except yesterday, which I think you might have noticed, my dear friends, that you missed a whole day without hearing my voice in your ear. That was fresh and live Yep I didn't record I abandoned you For someone more important, my wife Who actually invaded my morning walk And walked with me And we had a great time So <clears throat> I've got a bunch of updates So I've been researching the podcast 2.0 universe And I found on the podcast index social mastodon, someone was posting clips. Someone was posting clips from shows, and I looked into it. And this is app called Pod Universe. Um, let me get the name exactly right. podverse and podverse does a bunch of the things that I wanted to do well it allows you to clip and share shows you have to pay to do that but it allows you to do it Um, well it doesn't do transcription but uh, it allows you to vote on shows and share clips So I think that's important. And um, I found a whole bunch of new tech podcasts that I'm listening to on that podverse, which is a great index. I just went to technology section category, and then I sorted by most popular this week. And it gave me a great cross-section. And I found some new shows that are ultra-geeky that I like. So be prepared for some new clips. Also... There was a second interview on the Noam Chomsky book um, done on the uh, New Books Network. Or is it a second book from Noam Chomsky? I doubt it. Um, I guess he didn't like the uh, interview on the Economics Network, so he went over to another network host to get interviewed. I'm not sure. But it's great to hear the leftists conspiring together when they think no one's listening. And they talk about the uh, Yellow Jacket Revolution in France openly that you'll never hear before. People be like what? Yellow Jacket? Like I talked to a guy in France, he's like I don't know anything about a Yellow Jacket Revolution or protest. So um When it, coincidentally, you can call me a member of the Yellow Jacket uh, Squad because I wear my Yellow Jacket on my morning walk. My safety vest. It's an essential part of walking outside in the morning. Let you be seen. Yeah. So we got some other topics coming up. Um, is open source dead? Is going around... And um, the other guy says open source is a vow of poverty. <clears throat> and I'm going to have to philosophize on this one topic that I feel strongly about. So I might as well get started on that one. Now, first of all, I don't have a solution. don't have a solution to this problem. I don't have a solution to the question of of uh, how to build a utopian society, okay? But I can give you some theories. <clears throat> that if Silicon Valley creates Uh, a communist utopia inside of one of their companies and it makes a safe space for people to live right and those people feel safe and they can contribute to open source then that's a good thing for the community open source so if a company wants to be evil like Google does because they got rid of the don't be evil clause maybe part of being evil is creating a communist collective of programmers who want to share with the rest of the world because they feel so bad about working for an evil company think of it as a community outreach and uh, the open source uh, companies do have open source community outreach people to reach out to the community. So I think that's uh, one, one way to do it. Um, there's also companies that pro- like Red Hat providing open core type systems open source but also proprietary extensions. So basically the DevOps stuff is proprietary. And um, so I'm going to say that there is no solution to... There's no one solution to anything. Let's start with that. There's no one solution to any problem. And in America, you have freedom... ...to do whatever you want. And, uh, oh yeah, whatever is legal is... Ethical. Just remember that. So lawyers, as long as it's legal, are ethical. So that's the first important thing to keep in mind. That's not unethical to treat your com- your employees like shit, as long as it's legal, according to the law, according to the le- uh, professional legal ex- experts. Now I have been catching up. On a bunch of leftist shows, especially the, um, especially the best of the left, and they are blatant in censorship and wanting to censor. <clears throat> They're talking about, basically. Um, they basically will use anything, any means necessary to eliminate the enemy especially censorship and um, <clears throat> I think that the reasons or that are also censored. So in the end, the censorship is hidden. It's not necessarily um, in the open. It's encoded in another level. And if you re- listen to them, they don't say outright that they want to censor. They have But basically, they present outrage, and they present the censorship as kind of a matter of fact type of thing, but they don't really let you question it. They don't really bring it as a topic. It's just a tool to use. And I can present clips on this, and I really want to present clips on all of these topics because I think they're important for you to hear the source and not just my summary of things. me grab a cup of a sip of my coffee by the way it is six o'clock in the morning and you leave it two hours late so this will not be a four-hour podcast this is gonna be a short apology letter to my listeners and I wanted to say th- th- shout out to Scotty who um, told me to keep up my walks Scotty has a guest episode on this show in season 2 episode 1 and he's running for president and he likes to talk about money um, so thanks Scotty I appreciate that should have him on as a guest again And he also throws me some tips. He wanted to talk about permissions. Permissions versus no permissions. (laughs) So what I'm thinking is, is that most people, when they talk about open source, they don't realize the communist Marxist agenda behind the Free Software Foundation. They don't frame it that way. And I really need to write a book to actually put it directly into perspective so people can frame it that in the right perspective. Um, And Stallman's refusal, I think, to use uh, non-free software again, and to change all the terms. These are basically different forms of protest, I would say, and power. Um, he's using the toolbox of the communists and also his um, hypocrisy, as I've documented here is another the sacrifice of the individual and the sacrifice of values for the um, purpose of reaching the goal is definitely strong in him where he says basically if I have to break all of these rules to protect the freedom then I will so that's why he will break the rules of freedom in order to protect the rules of freedom and there is your paradox right there that's inherent in almost all the systems because they're all broken and no one has an answer and i'm not pretending to have one so is that the answer i'm not i won't pretend that it is the answer so i'm not even saying we're gonna have the paradox of there being an answer or there not being an answer and we're just gonna have to live with that And you can switch between the two, back and forth, infinitely. How's that? In a non-terminating girdle paradox. So that's where we are, or maybe we're not. Does that help put things into perspective? I hope so. I think that's going to be our running assessment of the truth, is that you you can't know the truth, and you can know the truth, paradox. And that is, and maybe not. Maybe you can know the truth, and the paradox is false. But then we can show that we can't know the truth, and the paradox is true, and so forth, ad nauseum. So, maybe that is a better way to look at it. And you don't know what's going to happen next. You know. So, I have been making very good progress on my introspector idea that I talk about a lot on this show and I'm sure you're all sick of hearing it. And I'm going to dedicate special shows for me blathering on that so you can just ignore them. I just want to say that show where I said please do not listen to it still got two listens. So I think that there's someone downloading the shows automatically and not listening to them. But anyway, this still count as uh, downloads. Probably one of them is my employer keeping tabs on me. So hello, and I'm thinking we really need to work on a set of questions that can crash the, the, the mythical computer. It, so when I was a kid, my dad got a, had a friend who was really crazy and he called us up. I taped it, I tried to tape it. Um, and he was saying that there's a system called TV. It's in the deserts of Utah, and it's spying on everyone. Now, that's pretty scary. This guy's got a skeleton on his front desk, front porch, just standing there in a hoodie. There's a system called TV standing on the front porch myself confused and scared. Ooh, scary. Scary skeletons. It's Halloween, guys. People put up skeletons outside. So, system called TV that was underground, massive computing system spying on everyone. And um, it was going on about that. And this was in the 80s. And um <clears throat> so I always had that in the back of my mind. And when things showed up, revelations showed up over time about more and more spying efforts. I'm like, okay, we've come to expect this. And I had indications that I was being spied on because my phone was actually doing things on its own at some points. In a very strange way. And um, here's an example of a test. Um, so I uh, hooked my work laptop up to my phone tether for internet. So it was super, super slow. And then um, I tried working and I noticed that my keyboard was typing super slow. And I think it's because the keyboard logger wasn't able to send the stuff off to the network fast enough. So, how's that? Hmm? Just a theory. I don't know for sure. Could be true. Could not be true. All of this could be true. Could not be true. We don't know. But... um I guess that's where we get into the area of proof. Can you prove something? But I did have someone, and I did catch them at work, at one company, um, going into my machine, and um, messing with SSH keys on my machine. Temporarily, I caught him doing that. And I'm pretty sure he was keylogging as well. So... Or has other exploits running. So we don't know, but uh, we can assume out of an abundance for safety, we have to practice good operational security, and we have to assume that everything we say and do is being monitored, unless you can prove otherwise. How's that sound? Now, <clears throat> in order to to monitor all this, you're actually going to need an artificial intelligence to sort through it. And I'm thinking that we can spoof that artificial intelligence by getting it to think about itself and to disprove its own existence. So I think that we can construct, like uh, Gödel Escherbach said, we can construct the phonograph that when played by the phonograph, it'll cause ripples and destroy the phonograph player. So we can construct sentences that are fed to the spying machine. That when the spying machine hears them, it will then self-destruct. So there you go. So there's the challenge of the day. Think some radical thoughts. Let's come up with some dangerous sentences. That when they're played to the NSA spying machine or the corporate spying machine, that they will actually crash it. And maybe we can get it to glitch and we can get, um, get, get it to execute some code that it wasn't intended to just based upon what we tell it. How's that? So we can actually exploit the exploiters. You know, exploiting the exploiters is kind of like running a Turing machine on a Turing machine. Or controlling a Turing machine via a Turing machine. And um, it's kind of getting into the idea of hacking. It's really getting into the idea of control. Who has control over the given situation? And um, do I have control or not? Is it true or false? And uh, maybe we should look at the the, uh, paradox of control and say, well, there is no such thing as absolute control. And we might have it, and then we might not have it. We have it for a moment. We have it over some particular item, and then we don't have it. So we have periods of control where we're creating symbols. We're creating items. We're controlling every aspect of those. We can derive them from foundational elements from leaves and um, reach conclusions, logic. talking about, what is it, predicate calculus, expression logics, something like that, things that can be proven to be true, and um, predicate calculus. I don't know enough about logic to to wax poetically over that topic. But let's get back to stuff that we do know about. Intuitively, we can understand things in our heart, in our gut. We know them to be true. Things we can see and feel and touch. Now, obviously... We can apply that paradox situation to that and say, is it the matrix? Yes or no. But even in the matrix, it is a leaf node of the matrix where you've reached a point of direct observation of something in the matrix. Or is it real? Well, it may seem real to you, And all of the inputs of your neurons will say that it's true but you cannot observe what's behind the curtain of your neurons because you're in them so let's think about that for a little bit kids everything look around you everything you see listen to the ears everything you hear move your fingers, even that. It's all being experienced in the brain eventually. Now, I would like to say that there must be some kind of experience in the fingers. And there must be kind of some experience in the backbone. And we know that people who are virtuoso pianist, like my wife, will transfer, just like a cat, will transfer up and down between the spine and the uh, lower part of the brain and to the upper parts of the brain, and they'll create a holistic experience from top to bottom. music and it will resonate through all levels and I think that the fingers have touch and that that touch is experienced locally the same way in all animals and that if you don't have upper brain functions, then you have lower brain functions. But even lower brain functions are experiences. And you can't say that ants don't experience things or plants don't experience things. You can say that, and we can throw that throw in there another paradox. Do plants experience things? Do they not experience things? We can switch back and forth on that. We can waffle. The waffle switch. The endless waffling. Well, I just want to point out that even in the matrix, or not, that the tips of your fingers will experience something, even if it's disconnected, even if it's not observed by the the map, the major part of your brain. So. what I'm getting at here is that we have a distributed awareness distributed neural network system with multiple centers and each of these centers is capable of routing and making decisions and these centers are also a form of consciousness now eventually we're going to get into the big brain the big system we're putting it all together we're constructing some kind of view of reality which by the way is lagging behind reality so what you think is now is actually then you're always lagging behind you're like on a slow dial-up a couple hundred milliseconds it takes to process anything so we're slow computers just think about that and we can look in the mirror all we want but the picture in the mirror will hit our eyes and come into our brains and we won't see it until it's been digested as well so that's even slower so when we get into reflection the more and more we reflect the weaker and weaker the signal is going to get over time And when we reflect on the reflection, we can create an endless reflection, looking in the mirror, the mirror looking in the mirror. Yes, we can do that. Camera pointed at the screen, pointed at the camera, creating the strange loops, creating the strange machines. And that's kind of where we spend our time here on this podcast, in that strange loop. Peeking into the abyss. Peeking into the abyss of the mind. Where the endless recursion spins out of control and loses shape. But mathematically, I think we can see that as a form of abstraction. We can describe that as a... um, derivative of some kind and that it's going to show us certain things as to how long things take the loop time and um, you know when you move the mirror Especially see this in the computer, but even on the, um, when you hold two mirrors up against each other, you see that the tunnel is going farther and farther away. Well, that's a, the curvature of your eye. That's the speed of light. Uh, that's the imperfection of the mirror, all taking part in that operation. I suppose if... The two mirrors were completely parallel. And the mirrors were completely perfect. <clears throat> and the light was generated. Um, in the center, fire some flash. And let's just say it was a vacuum that they could bounce in parallel for a while. But I suppose they'll lose energy over time or turn into heat, transform the energy into heat, or bounce off to the side due to imperfections or hit some atom in the center and bounce off. But I suppose that a, a light of a, a light of a photon, could it bounce indefinitely in a perfect mirror with no perfect parallel planes? I don't know. Would it heat up if there's no imperfection, if there's no resistance? <clears throat> so, these are some, some things to think about. And um, I suppose we could imagine these photons traveling in parallel, or we could just imagine them traveling in a straight line forever. So, the funny thing about the photon. Is that if you have a source of light it will travel in all directions <clears throat> and it represents energy in the past because at some point there was energy and now it's gone a flash of star exploding and that ripples through the universe until it reaches us millions of years, hundreds of millions of years later, billions of years later. So that is, an inf- it is information about an event traveling over time. Now, if we try and apply some of Mr. Wolfram's ideas, that these particles are really just structures on a graph that are moving around, that are propagating themselves forward, just like Finite state automata. You know, one of the questions that he. I haven't listened to the whole interview, and I have to go back and listen to that whole thing again. And the, the last three, last quarter of it, I did not listen to. But um, we never really got into the recursion question. Lex tried to bring up the topic and say, hey, well, just imagine we're monkeys running on this machine. But just imagine we have a machine running on the machine, simulating the machine. It's like, where's this actual simulation of the universe running? Right? Is it self-hosted? Do we have multiple layers of the universe where one layer is the graph layer? and everything else runs on top of it. But what runs the graph layer? So... What computes the computation layer? Okay, so, we're gonna stop here because I'm reaching the edge of my knowledge. And um, I'm just opening up some questions to think about for you, my guests, to ponder. I'm not providing you with any sources, any clips, any entertainment. Just what's in my memory. Echoes of things that I have seen. Shadows of reality. Crude Lego box, Lego blocks, approximations of the complexity of the universe. We're just playing with our Lego blocks, pretending them to be these things, but they're not really these things. The map is not the terrain. What we see in our mind is not the reality. That's a hard thing to deal with. And even worse, The ideas in our head that we speak are not the ideas that you receive. If we get into the whole topic of semiosis, the creation of symbols, the controlling of reality in these small little packets of words and ideas. Once they're expressed and put out here onto digital, that doesn't mean they're going to be interpreted. Doesn't mean they're gonna be interpreted in the same way. Doesn't mean the other person's even listening. And I suppose we do get into formalism because the brain likes forms and it likes its safe space. It likes it likes its comfort zone. And if we're going to get certain people to listen to us, we're going to have to put it into a form that they can accept or their brain is prepared to deal with. So I was listening to Gosling, inventor of Java. And he said that he's a very visual guy and he wants to have things laid out in a certain way on one page so he can understand it and this particular about formatting because for him i guess the formatting is the crutch that helps him create the knowledge graph in his head or whatever it is and he says he's a very visual thinker So we get into this whole question of form and meaning. Now, Umberto Eco, who you'll hear a lot on this podcast, he said, he wrote a book called The Open Work, and he talked about works that are not closed in their meaning, but open in their meaning, so that you can interpret them in many different ways and provide beauty on multiple levels. It offers everyone something to think about, and everyone is right. Now, we talked about structuralism, and the structuralist said, well, if we have all these different type of possibilities for words and sentences to be formed, and only one is right, why is that? So, this is kind of getting into that topic. Is everyone right? Or only one person, right? And that again, gets into the question of control, right? Are you in control or are you not in control, right? Are you controlling the meaning of things or are you not controlling the meaning of things? Is it an open or closed? Is there one answer or no answer or many answers? Are we in the paradox or are we not in the paradox? These are the things to think about. How many iterations do we do of the paradox? How many times do we waffle? And I think that's also the key point in avoiding the endless recursion is to put time limits on them. and also do the uda the observe orient decide and act the loop of the loop of uh, managing things and um Mm-hmm. so the OODA loop will, so Stephen Wolfram says that it doesn't matter what you know nothing will save you you can't outthink the un, <clears throat> irreducible you can't And Jaco will say that it's leadership that decides the battle, and it's leadership and the ability to learn and outthink your opponent is the key. But what if your opponent is the chaos? What if your opponent is nature? Even if you know all the variables, can you really predict the future? So if your opponent is nature, then really, you can't really outthink her. You can't really grasp the chaos. Oh, and yeah, this Timothy Leary clip, he was going on about how nature is chaos and complex, and we cannot contain her. But then I'm going to say, There's a paradox there because we can contain her a little bit. And that's what philosophy is. It's the creating of ideas to share with our contemporaries to deal with the chaos of the day for a limited time until everything changes. But Timothy Leary was saying in this clip, and I have to and all these sh- why don't I just give you links to these shows instead of giving you clips, I'll just give you links to all the shows I've been listening to I- and you can go and listen to them because I'm not going to have time to clip them all I need a better player that lets me clip on the fly as I said, just by talking to it or tapping a button I want to be able to shake it We'll just tap volume up twice or something and start a clip, you know, with super simple controls because I don't have time. I do have time for you, my friends, but today I don't have the time or energy to go and go clip all of those. And it's actually quite a shit ton, a metric shit ton, not a British Imperial Standard Unit shit ton. It's a metric shit ton of things I've been listening to. In the meantime, building up to this episode, which I'm going to call a summary node. We've got clip shows, we've got interview shows, we've got random getting lost in the trees of the mind shows, and then we have these nice summary shows. We put it all together for you. We construct the Lego blocks of the mind. And create a little battleship out of Legos and say, isn't that nice? Something nice and simple. Something your mind can deal with. Not too complicated, easy listening, easy going. That's the way we like it. Now, I am in a cloud this morning. The whole city is covered in in fog and clouds. And I can hardly see anything... I think we have a half moon today. I want to say hi to my dad, if you're listening today. Love you, dad. I hope everything is going well with you. And I'm just gonna throw a random message in there for you in the middle of the show. Because you're my one true fan. My only dedicated listener. But sometimes I feel like you don't listen through all the way into the show. So we'll see if you listen, if you heard this message. See, there we go. That's what I'm talking about, about controlling the message and one possible interpretation. So now I can call my dad up and say, Dad, I'm gonna test you and see if you actually listen to my podcast. And that's gonna be creating the control loop. Right? So that's what happened in this interview. This douchebag was like, I don't want any narratives. And then, when I gave him narratives, he, he ended the interview because he was lacking the control loop. I wasn't submissive enough for him. See, they just change the rules up on you and then see if you can. And that's what Gosling was talking about on his Lex Friedman interview with Steve Jobs being the total asshole. And he was also autistic, I heard. I heard he was here at this location where I'm standing at the College of New Jersey in the 80s at the Trenton Computer Club meeting. And he had his apple or whatever with him. And he was so socially awkward that he was standing face to the wall talking to himself because he couldn't deal with people. I think he's on the spectrum, or was on the spectrum, for sure. And, um... That Silicon Valley is full of douchebags who want to be like Steve Jobs and they want to outdo themselves in being assholes so they can make their slaves outperform themselves in the Olympics of the uh, Kaiser Nero for the benefit of the entertainment of the masses. It's like, look at this nice iPhone that I made for you. Think about all the people who had to suffer to make it. And by the way, I'm taking away all your freedoms and you're going to love it. The whole premise of the thing makes me sick. But I see that there's a certain charm to it. Certain simplicity Sometimes you just want to use something, you don't want to know all about it. Just think, you get some device that's got a thousand switches on it, a thousand buttons and lights, and you got to read through 50 pages of really broken English to figure out how to set the clock on your newest device. And it's some dance of pushing buttons and waiting for time and jumping up and down and doing that over and over and over again. Ain't nobody got time for that. So I do understand the idea of simplicity versus complexity. So to get back to the dialectic of open source, the fight between the employer and the employee, between the producer of the software and the consumer of the software. Is it the consumer being exploited or the producer being exploited? Who's on top and who's in control? So we're gonna have an endless fight, a Hegelian dialectic of the, what is it? Um, Thesis Antithesis Synthesis (laughs) So The guy produces a piece of software And it has one possible way of being used It has one path of control Let's say through it So Then someone shows up and tries to use it He says I can't use it That's the antithesis maybe The synthesis says okay i'm going to try and accommodate you and then that's the synthesis between the two so now we have a new piece of software which has two perspectives built into it then the third person shows up and says i can't use it i'm breaking it it's not doing what i want and again We go through this loop and we synthesize more and more viewpoints and more and more perspectives into the software and eventually the software will become either more general and it'll reach a new level where it'll become so generic that even its configuration will become a language, let's say, a Turing-complete language, and then we've reached level two. We've bootstrapped a whole new level on top of the original software because it's just become so, so flexible. It's like, okay, well, here's a library of functions you can call to do whatever you want that we've learned from dealing with all these different problems and solving these other problems. These are things that we think are common. Now, the question is, do these library functions get shared? How do they get shared? Or are they kept secret and controlled? So this is the core question of the open source And the open source answer is, yes, share it. Closed source is, don't share it. So what's going to happen is, if you share it, other people, even your competitors, will try and use them. And they'll find things that break. They'll go through the synthesis loop. And now, they are going to come up with changes. Now the question is, will they share them? Or will they not share them? If they won't share them um, you don't have the share alike clause and if they do share them well if they won't share them you could force them with a the share alike clause to share them the question is who do you share them with well you have to share them with your customers so if you ever if you ever bought something, and they have like the open source license section, at the very bottom of the 500 pay contract, and they have a link to a site where you can download the source code of various tools that they used to build it, or that are included in that package, that's what you got. Now, minutes remaining what's that my recorder is beeping at me maximum recording time wow okay guys well let's uh let's stop this maximum recording time is one hour i didn't know that Wow, well, maybe that's why my other podcast stopped after one hour. And maybe um, I didn't have my headphones on to hear that beeping sound. Wow. All right. Well, this is with the uh, Anchor.fm. Now, I was listening to this show, New Media. They're talking about Podcasting 2.0. And they're talking, they're ranting about Anchor, how people are using Anchor to pollute the namespaces. And upload cloned podcasts well what's also funny is is that my podcast is still not on the Apple index I have to go contact them again and ask them to resubmit it please I really think that this podcast I don't know if we're on the um, I haven't gotten a confirmation if we're on the uh, podcast 2.0 index either But at this point, this is my therapy session. And, um... It's okay that we only have a very small uh, user base. Because I don't really need the drama. I don't need the... tons and tons of feedback. The only thing I want to make sure is that I get my... thing uploaded to archive.org. So I have a uh, copy of the podcast, that would be important, because who knows how long this anchor experiment's going to go, and if it's just shut off one day, I mean, it can happen, so trusting a third-party cloud provider is kind of stupid, I should also just back it up myself, write it to a CD-ROM, yeah, um... Boy, I'm sweating. It's cloudy. I'm walking through a freaking cloud here. I think someone said to me yesterday in New Jersey, is 20% um, swamps. We're definitely in the swamp zone here. Trenton, Princeton, the whole area full of swamps. Lots of water. It's a fight against the swamp and the mosquitoes. But it's great for growing tomatoes, let me tell you. All right, guys. I think I've touched on a whole bunch of topics today. And I was just talking about the decisions in sharing. And I do get the idea that sharing can be voluntary. And um, instead of trying to force people to share um, by making, crafting more and more forcible licenses like the GPL, um, you can ask for them to share and create a safe space for them to share so that the communists' enclaves inside of a... Mega evil corporation, right? Will just feel like it is nice for them to share. That's one way. Um, <laughs> and, um, There was this guy who came up with this crazy license. I forget the name. They're talking about it. Where it's like... You're allowed to do it. You're allowed to use this. But I'm the sole determinant of if it's a valid use case or not. That was hilarious. So... Um... I don't have an answer. But I can say that... Certain more open licenses are more popular because they're less restrictive. And, um... You know, there's all these laws and restrictions on corporate... um, Well, first of all, there's official corporate policies. And then there's individual developers. So we're going to have to look at both of those. But I'm more focused on what is like, not focused, but here's the question I'm trying to think of. Besides individual developers, we're talking about corporate entities in America, in a capitalistic society. The question would be, and we should actually study this. Like, what are the different success stories? What are the different, um, what are the different modalities of how corporations in, engage in open source? And how they share back. And I think that there's a huge, huge um, range of things going on. Huge range of things going on. Just think about all the different JavaScript libraries. How's it going? Strange clouds today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, And as I said, Amazon's going to eat your lunch and do it better and cheaper than you. And they're not sharing necessarily their DevOps stuff. So the question is going to be who can execute better? So I think that we might see a natural progression in things. If we have something net new that you need, that's critical, it doesn't matter what the cost is, you're gonna wanna have it. So let's call that the first mover principle. Now, I'm not sure that many open source projects are first movers. A lot of them are open source or free software replacements for other packages. So they're clones. So that's one thing. I was just thinking about this Golang talk that I I was listening to. Um, And I was thinking, I'm just going to switch topics here real quick. This is a stream of random. We do switch topics, like, randomly. The guy was talking about generics. And he was talking about how hard it is for a language to change once it's entrenched. Like you can stay at version zero forever, as long as no one's using it, no one's gonna complain. But once you get mass adoption, software takes on a life of its own, especially if it's an open source project. So that's something interesting to think about, resistance to change. And um, I was thinking, hey, well, what about C++ as a macro system on top of C? Can't we make like Go++ as a macro system on top of Go? And then I was thinking, Introspector can be a macro system on top of any language. <clears throat> and I was also thinking, Haskell is a macro system on top of Haskell. I mean, it has the ability to change the language. Um, It's got some crazy language features. So if I build the Introspector in Haskell and make interfaces to all these other languages and compilers, then you could build your Go++ on top of that. So that's my little interlude. And now, um, so we have the first mover, then we have the response, open source response. Now, you might have some open source things that are the first movers, but maybe not. And um, so maybe we should think about making products, that are naturally going open-source. So we there's that idea of the open-source ransom. So this software is not open-source until its ransom time period is paid up. So we have some kind of coin, let's say, that we issue, and that coin will allow you free, uh, non-free access to pay for until contract says that enough coins have been collected to provide a free access so whoever's in that in um, how's it going whoever's in possession of a coin that says they have uh, open source access they're allowed to then distribute that And then I guess the uh, value of the closed sourced coins will go down, or all of them. But then if you want a new feature that has to be paid for, well then um, that will represent a new coin that needs to be paid for. So. The developer's kind of like mining the source and adding in features, and those new features need to be paid for. So people will either subscribe with monthly payments and gain access to, let's say, a uh, source code that will be free, like an early access, bound by a contract So that might actually um, allow you to be a first mover and be open source Now if your competitor subscribes he takes all your stuff and then he reverse engineers it Takes the best bits and uses it in his Well, that's bad but What's his advantage because eventually? Yours is going to be open source. Right. So you have a first mover advantage for a while and you could define that as any time frame you want that you think um, is reasonable and you create a coin contract that represents the license so that people know what they're getting into if they pay if they pay they know that they're going to have what the conditions are in a smart contract okay so that's the idea of the day smart contracts for licensing software and supporting developers smart contracts for software licenses and then smart contracts that will say if it's compatible if an intended use is compatible so is this code compatible with another piece of code? Well, can the smart contract figure that out? Right? And uh, if we need to hire a lawyer to resolve a question, they could be paid. And hey, that answer might be uh, put into the smart contract system. So, it'll also be ransomed if you want to know the answer. Or you want to use that software. You have to pay. Yeah, and we might even have different levels. With NDAs. Like, here's a copy of the source code. But you got to be a severe partner, and we have to vet you etc, etc, and you have to sign all types of contracts to say that you're not going to reveal its secrets. So yeah, that's kind of an interesting way to look at things. So we might turn this whole thing on its head and say... It's going to be open source. And here's the promise that it'll be open source. And we could even have an escrow account where once the um, particular version of software is paid for, then the software is then unlocked. Automatically, um, so that the developer can't undo it once it's set in motion that might be cool I wonder how that would work but I guess we're going to have to have some trusted parties and I guess those trusted parties might Yeah, we have to look at that, how we can create a cryptographic function that will become slowly weakened over time and revealed bit by bit until eventually they become so weak that it can become cracked. Like a slowly where the bits in the cryptographic function are really are revealed over, over time but you don't want just one version. You want also the next version. You want the update, right? So version two should be um, less expensive than version one and people who bought version one, right? Or do we just pay a monthly fee? to use the latest version You want to pay a monthly fee to use the latest version of this software and eventually the older versions after a certain amount of months become open after they're paid for So that's kind of a deal, it's not about poverty. It's a deal of a certain amount of poverty. After a certain time, looks like a patent, like here's protection for a certain amount of time for your idea. That might be um, an incentive for people to to use. I think this might be a nice product to think about. Uh, there's an original ransomware a license, but it wasn't envisioned. And ransomware is a bad term because now it's got a different meaning. Um, but it hasn't been uh, discussed in terms of a smart contract yet. And licenses as smart contracts, or even code as smart contracts. developers going to develop code that matches this these testing criteria. As a smart contract, that's interesting. But what about the Q&A function? Like just passing these tests is one thing. Um, passing tests is one thing but actually fulfilling the needs of a a human is another like let's say things that are not specified in the contract, except that someone needs to be satisfied. So, I guess you could make a contract that says runtime constraints, memory constraints, CPU heat constraints, instructions, count constraints, right, you can give all types of constraints and then also specify the inputs and outputs and basically say, you know, this is what we expect of a function. And I guess you could learn that from the existing functions, like this is what this function's implementation has historically been. version one of it can you make a better one can you improve it by this can you improve it by 10% Good good morning so those are some ideas of a smart contract Yeah, so I looked into um, how to write Haskell for Android, because it's Java. And there's a system called Frege. Frege is a Java Haskell implementation. And it looks like you can call Frege from Android Java. So that's kind of interesting. So maybe when I get some stuff running in uh Haskell, I can compile it to Freg and then put it on an Android device. That'd be cool. Now, <clears throat> being able to compile C code into the Haskell would then mean that I could run the C code in the Java interpreter on Android. But we can already create native binaries on Android, and we can also run native Haskell on the Android using LLVM and the Termux. So I could also just create a native app. And I suppose I could create a native app that throws up a web page. Or I could create a native app that implements an API and create a Java app that creates the web page or something like that. A native Android Java app. Now, we haven't talked about the machine learning yet a lot, but we did talk about all of this before when we were getting lost in the um, swipe deploy project idea. And I want to be clear here. A lot of times, we're talking about descriptions of projects. So we're analyzing the ideas behind projects, and we're creating a description of them based upon the source code. That's what the compiler dump does. And then we're at, we're we're crushing those descriptions and compiling them into new descriptions. So we're translating and transforming them. And that's what I think is key here in uh, in the Introspective Project. In the process of doing that, so the process of building that system, we're going to go into reflection, and we're going to go into these mirrors pointing at each other. And the basic idea is you have a um, ability to describe a system Let's call it the descriptor function. And you have the ability to crush that description down and translate it. Let's call that the translator system. So it's describe and translate, right? Expand and reduce, right? We're expanding to some super verbose description and then we're crushing that down into something compact and usable. And efficient, okay? Expand and reduce. So if we do infinite expansion, if we expand on the expander, eventually it'll r- turn into some simple um, lists of things being concatenated to each other, nested lists, and a Lisp like language which we can then crush back down and eventually I guess it'll get into the byte level where we're just like saying concatenate these bytes together create a word out of these characters create a character out of these bits right create a file out of these bits and we're just going to describe the topology of the bits in the file like at the lowest level if you expand it all the way down. So unless you crush it, expansion will infinite all the way down to bits. And of course you can look for patterns in those bits. And then you'll notice, okay, we got opening and closing parentheses. You've got identifiers that occur all the time, and some that occur only sometimes. You've got a whole spectrum of occurrences. You've got co-occurrences and pairs. And I suppose eventually you could derive from those statistics a Lexing algorithm. Well, since it's already been expanded, we do have already the symbols captured. I guess we could expand it even more. But no matter how much we expand, we're not gonna lose the fact that these words belong together in a group, right? I guess until, I guess you could reach a final point where you could say, Um, we just encode the fact that words belong in a group with opening and closing brackets of some kind, and it just becomes one stream of characters or one stream of bits. I think if you keep on expanding the bit, the the descriptions of bits, um, you're going to reach an atomic level where you're just gonna say, this is a true bit or false bit. This is a group of bits of this size or this variable size. This is a group of bits delimited by these other patterns of bits, right? And then once we do that, we create these patterns, we can crush it all back down again, and then we can interpret the whole thing again. Then once we interpret it, we will create new structures which we can then expand upon and collapse. Unless, of course, we lose information, like encoding them and losing information. Abstraction. It's like, okay, well, we're going to cut off these bits of here and then group them together and count them. So truncate, map reduce, and count and get into some kind of analysis on that level of different parts where we lose information. But these are just derived from the original. So we're not really losing them, but we're creating abstractions. And this is where I'm kind of thinking about a decision tree in machine learning. So in machine learning, decision tree, it's like what decisions do you make in what order to um, discriminate or determine a certain output and you train it on that? So, you have to define your questions exactly. <sighs> and it becomes tricky to do so. So here's some ideas, again, and we have covered a lot of this before, but let's just go over it, all over it again. Um, for anyone left standing, I kinda feel like Dr. Van Helsing in Mel uh, Brooks version of Dracula, where he's knocking down the students, by handing them organs, and then his nurse comes in and says, Doctor, you did it again. So, where are we? So, let's say we want to reach all... Parts of a system. Test. Okay, so let's say we can create a number function. We can enumerate all things in a system, one to a million, and now we um, want to develop a test cases that will execute this system and make it reach these points. So, we could execute it on given inputs and observe and observe what point should they reach, in what order, then we could slice that down until we see... Okay, let's recap here because I got interrupted. We were talking about um, slicing up... Execution graphs and then re rolling them so that we could do step by step reaching of each step that was previously met. Um, and then we could annotate what variables were uh, used. Where they fl- flowed from, where they fl- flew, flowed from, and then we could determine what data was critical or not critical in that flow. What data was discarded? What data was kept? You know, some things that might be just names that don't are not consequential. And then, um, yeah, we want to rename things in the source to be more semantic to say, well, this name here contains all this information. Now, we could talk about long names. And uh, what do they call them? Polish notation? Well, let's talk about like, super expansive introspective notation where we could create a name that maxes out the compiler and contains every single thing that we know about that identifier in the program, right? and then replace it everywhere it's used so it's totally crazily um, Distinct. Now we could then sort those names and regenerate them in, with a uh, decision tree, so that we make them distinct enough to d- distinguish between others, but reduce their length and just put a comment or a descriptive string about them in there, we could embed a string. And you know we can add text segments to a program pretty easily. Like, we could compile in text segments, or data segments, let's just call them data segments. We could make an introspector segment that contains all the information we need. We can encode all this information into bits. We can encode it into bytes. We can put it into strings or numbers or whatever, as long as we have some interpretation function to decode it. And that could be a shared library, a common runtime, a kernel function, some kind of macro. Now, a lot of stuff we want to do are going to be like, oh, let's iterate over all the fields of this struct recursively. So, like you have this blob of introspective data, how are you going to use it at runtime? And how it will be efficient? Because you don't want to... at runtime really iterate over all them. And maybe you don't want to schlep all this data with you at all times. And maybe you want to generate code that's super efficient. So it's either function calls or expanded, you want to unroll loops. You want to make an array. So got to think about different you've got to think about stuff that is uh, clean enough to be unrolled <sighs> um, by a compiler <laughs> and we've got to look at the code generation and make sure that if we inject something, And also, we want it to be clean enough to be looked at by a user. So we're going to need to do stuff at compile time. stuff at compile time and we might want to do stuff at runtime because we're creating an interactive component we're going to want to access these things and display them to the user in some way we might want to transform them or pre-compile them so yes so we want to access these descriptors at compile time and expand on them and do things and crush them back down all in a functional like language and not have to um, worry or we can create data at runtime in a different form and transform it into a new form at runtime for use So we have a whole bunch of options to think about. Now, I really think that we can tie this whole thing of education, machine learning, introspection, and open source together into one package and tie it all up into some kind of bootstrap system. where, let's just talk about what are the attributes of this system, how would we measure it. Well, an ideal system would be something where the core of it is understandable, user-friendly, learnable, interactive, can explain itself and display itself to a user. A user can interact with it and can explore it in different ways. That whole system can be ported to multiple platforms. So we have some kind of driver to execute this thing. All right, well, that concludes today's episode of Brain Dump. I hope you enjoyed it and talk to you next time.